Amen. All right. Uh, yesterday was uh, really amazing, and I hope you guys are encouraged. Uh, those of you who are there are able to serve or donate and participate anyway. I just want to say thank you uh, for helping us make this come together. Uh, you know, as we say all the time, uh, we want to really be a light in a dark place, and so we're really grateful for the opportunity to bless and to serve. Uh, as you saw, at least as far as we know, 18 people made decisions for Jesus yesterday as we were presenting the gospel. They would come in, and we would present the gospel in a room and, and see how the Lord was working, and then they would go get the supplies that are needed. Uh, and so we were able to see at least 18 in that way, which is an amazing thing to thank God for. And, uh, but also so many other stories and things that were happening throughout the day. Uh, just as an amazing um, reality of how much God is working. And so like you heard a little bit in the video that there was a lady who had had a dream about um, this particular thing happening, but she didn't know about City Light or the event coming up. It wasn't like a precursor. Uh, she had just had a dream about being at a church and getting wheelbarrows of stuff taken to her car. Uh, and then she found out about City Light and she found out about the event and she showed up and she was like, this is my dream, you know, uh, which is wild. And I, I think it's a good reminder and an encouragement for all of us to like just show up. God's doing everything else. You know what I'm saying? Like, I can't give nobody a dream, neither can you, but God can. And so why don't we just show up, we'll serve, we'll do what we can do. Uh, and something we say often is, if you do what we can do, then God does what God can do. Uh, and so be really encouraged by that. The Lord is so active at orchestrating and working, not only with events like this, but just in your life, you know. And if you do what you can do, uh, God will do the million things that God can do that you cannot. And so uh, what a blessing. That same lady actually had uh, a little two-year-old that has cancer, goes to uh, chemotherapy four times a week. Can you imagine a little two-year-old? Uh, which is about, especially as a parent, the worst thing I could possibly think of. Um, and so we were able to pray over that family and uh, discuss some ways that we can support them and help them moving forward into the future. So not only are we able to bless many families on this day, but I think the Lord opens up doors for new relationships so that we can continue to show the love of Jesus, especially to people in such situations like that. And so uh, that's what we came here to do, and that's what we're going to continue to do. And so thank you for your support, your generosity, your involvement, your participation uh, through this, through that, everything uh, happens. And so uh, yesterday was amazing, and i uh, really grateful for God in that way. Um, and so today we're going to be discussing a little bit about Easter. What I want to do before we jump into that um, is remind you for this weekend for Easter, uh, there's several things coming up. You have a card on your seat. Can you show me the card? All right. We're going to do the same thing as we did last week. Hold it up and then turn to your neighbor and say, I'm going to give this to someone this week. All right. Don't be a liar. Don't be a liar. All right, I'm putting you in a position right now. You can either fulfill or you can be a liar. Okay, this is what good pastors do. I right? put this up. Okay, I'm going to give this to somebody. I don't care if it's a stranger. You don't have. You can just walk out here and go find somebody. Just give it to somebody. Invite someone uh, to church this coming weekend. Especially for those of you who love Jesus and want an opportunity to be able to invite people into a relationship with Jesus. Uh, Easter is an amazing weekend, an opportunity for people uh, who usually wouldn't consider going to church uh, to come to church. And maybe some of you are already here and you've come a week early. You normally don't go to church and you're here. Uh, praise the Lord. I'm so excited for what God might have to say to you this morning. Uh, so a reminder to take that, invite someone, bring a friend, family member, whatever. And then also for those of you who are a part of City Light, remember we're asking you to park at Graham Road Elementary. And so there will be a shuttle all day. 
Uh, and so if you want to walk, that's great. It's a short walk. But if you'd like the shuttle, 8 a.m. to 1 p.m., the shuttle's running to pick you up, to bring you here, to take you back to your car. So if you're new or, or new to City Light, confused about how to get about around here, then don't worry about that. But if you're a City Light person who comes here all the time, you know how things work, please park at the parking lot just for that one day. Uh, we would like to leave all the cars off of uh, Rosemary Lane behind us, and we would like to leave the parking lot open for newcomers uh, since next week will probably be a little bit crazy. So please go ahead and do that as a way to help uh, us be able to welcome uh, new people and to make this environment as uh, useful and friendly as possible. So uh, go ahead and do that. We good on that? Everybody good? All right, all right, all right. Uh, so today we're going to take a break from our uh, First Thessalonians series for two weeks in light of Easter, and we're going to consider uh, and reflect on uh, the truths that Easter presents to us. And so today is something called Palm Sunday, uh, which is the Sunday before Easter. It's the week before, uh, and it's the time in the scriptures when Jesus enters into Jerusalem to prepare to go to the cross. And so this is the season where he sets his face onto this in very particular fashion. Uh, for those of you who are familiar with the story, you know, he rides in on a donkey, and uh, there's people waving uh, the palm branches at him. They're saying, Hosanna, Hosanna, Hosanna. The same people would crucify him in five days. Uh, and so don't trust the praise of people, all right? That's a good lesson in that. But uh, this is what's happening historically at this season. And so on Palm Sunday, we want to take a minute, and we want to ask and consider the question, why did Jesus come? So every year at this point in time, uh, we want to consider this question, why did Jesus come? And to be reminded of the essential truths of the gospel message and what Jesus has done for us. And I know many of you are in different places in your life, in your faith. Uh, some of you might still be see seeking these things out. Uh, some of you might have been followers of Jesus for 50 years. But this question is of the utmost importance no matter where you are in your faith because we all need to know and understand why did Jesus come. I don't want some of you to reject something you don't understand, and so I want you to understand why Jesus came. I want you to have the answer as to what's going on in Christianity and what is the offer to you as someone who's considering this. And for those of you who do know the Lord, I want you to consider, does my life make sense in light of why Jesus came, you know? Is, is my life in light of why Jesus came? And maybe this would be a helpful corrective to say, well, this is why Jesus came, and I am a Christian, but my life doesn't do anything to do with that, you know? And so I need to, once again, align my life with the purposes of Jesus. Uh, there are lots of wonderful ways to answer this question. Obviously, the most important one is Jesus came to save. Uh, he came to die on a cross and to be raised from the dead and to offer new life to everyone who would trust in him. That is the big picture of this. But there are specific ways that happens and things that are revealed about that. And there's one specific one I want us to look at in 1 John. So if you open your Bible to 1 John chapter 3. All right, good. Verse 8. We're going to look at just one verse this morning, uh, and it's going to teach us something significant. So here's what is said about why Jesus came. 1 John 3, 8. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. And everyone should give this a hearty amen. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. This is very significant and important, and I think this point needs to be emphasized, particularly in this season of our lives, uh, when we, as, a, as everyone, see and experience so much evil around us in the world, just pure, I mean, unimaginable, devil-wrought, wicked evil. You know you can't spell devil without evil. I don't know if you realize that one yet. Pure, just wickedness. We see that around us. We also experience so much of that in our own lives. 
So many of you have such histories of trauma or brokenness that you're currently experiencing now. You're carrying so much sorrow. You just came in here heavy. Your life is heavy. So you see around you a world that is broken, the types of atrocities and war that are unimaginable, but then you also experience a life you know, that is broken and the types of things that have not only happened to you, but the types of things you have also done to others. And so we carry all of this sorrow, and we, we, we feel so often so hopeless, and then Easter comes in, and the Lord has something to say about that. And I want you to be encouraged this morning about this. And so the first thing you must understand, though, is that the real battle going on is one you cannot see every day. The suffering you experience and you see around the world is a byproduct of a battle you can't see, which is why you need the scriptures and the Lord to reveal to you the things that are actually happening around you. So John 10.10, Jesus says, the thief comes only to steal, kill, and destroy, but I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. The thief is stealing, killing, and destroying. He's talking about the devil. And what Jesus is explaining to us is that the devil is constantly, 24-7, him and his little minions called demons, actively at work to do three specific things, steal, kill, and destroy. They never stop thinking about these things. Their aims are only aimed at these things. They spend the entire history of their existence trying to accomplish these things. They're doing it in the world around you, and they're also attempting to do it in your life. This is the spiritual reality and the battle that's going on around you that you can't see that is the root of the things that you can see. And this is why you need to understand the scriptures and what's going on around you so that you can actually deal with it. Now, I first want to deal with some of you who might be skeptical about this. You know, um, the devil's done a great job of making us think of him as like a red guy with a horn, you know, and a tail and a pitchfork walking around going, hey, 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 you know, and it looks so ridiculous, you don't believe it anymore. You know, it's like, that's a character. It's imaginary. It's a fiction. Uh, he's done a really great job of convincing us that it's kind of silly. It's just silly. The devil's a silly concept. But I want to do a couple things now to help you not only understand this, but maybe for some of you that these parts of Christianity are hard to believe. I want to give you some things to consider. The first, in light of all the evil and the wickedness around you, I want to ask you if there's really any other good explanation. Because so many of us are taught to believe that humans are basically good. So if you believe that humans are basically good, then where in the world does this level of wickedness come from? You know what I'm saying? If your worldview is that humans are basically good, then how do you get from good to like rape, murder, war atrocities? How do, where does that, how do you get there if humans are basically good? Where does that level of wickedness and evil come from? if humans are basically good. And you can't say, oh, well, there's a few aberrations. You know, it doesn't happen. This kind of wickedness, as we all know, has happened throughout all of history, time in and time in time. It's not an aberration for something awful like this to happen. So many of you have experienced these kinds of wickedness in your own life, and we're obviously seeing it played out across the board. And so I have to ask the question, if humans are basically good, then where in the world does this level of wickedness come from, and why does it happen so consistently? And I think you have to begin to think through, well, there may be something deeper happening that I can't see. And my assumption that humans are basically good isn't really sufficient for me to believe and to understand all of the evil and the wickedness that I see in the world. Maybe there's something else that's going on. That's the first thing. The second thing is that if you would believe that there is no God, or maybe you struggle to believe that there is a God, 
Once, I hope that you know that you're very welcome here. We're glad that you're here listening online. If you struggle to believe that there is a God and, and you would consider all of us to just be objects of accident, you know, we're just here, we're matters of science, you know, we're just kind of things. Uh, we just kind of happened, and so we're really just flesh and bone. Uh, I have a question for you. Why in the world does it bother you that bad things happen? You need to think about this, Okay. Why, if God isn't there, and we're just things that are here by accident, then why does it bother you that bad things happen? Why? You wouldn't be mad at me if I threw the light and hit the piano. You wouldn't feel bad for the light. You might say, well, that was a weird, dumb decision, you know, that costs money. But you wouldn't say, oh, poor light, I'm so sorry something bad happened to that light. I hope the light's feelings aren't hurt. Why? Because it's a thing. It's just a thing. It's just lights and plastic and stuff. And you know that. So you don't have feelings in accordance with that. Any of your feelings about the light would be associated with me, the human. Now, apply this to your own thinking to say, especially if you do this way, or you have friends who think this way, or family, or you're watching online, you think this way, you're if you don't believe that God is there, and you don't really believe that anything is kind of orchestrating these things, or that humans are significant at all, and we're really just matters of science, flesh and blood, then there's no reason for you to consider or to even feel bad that bad things happen. In the same way you wouldn't be feel bad for the light, you can't feel bad for a human unless you believe that humans have dignity by which they are made in the image of God. And so if you believe there is no God, then you really have no ground to stand upon, and you really should begin to question, why does it bother me? Why does all this bother me? What's going on inside of me that teaches me something about me that maybe I have yet to understand? Because this does bother me. Of course it bothers you. And the idea that I'm just here by accident isn't sufficient explanation for why does that bother you. Okay, you see that? So humans being basically good isn't a sufficient category for understanding where all the evil comes from at that level so consistently and there being no God isn't a sufficient explanation to explain to you why in the world it bothers you that bad things happen to people. And so I want you to begin to consider maybe this idea of a spiritual world around you, and particularly the devil being actively at work to steal, kill, and destroy, isn't so crazy after all. There is something supernatural going on around us, and the Bible teaches us there's a real battle between evil and good. Real evil and real good. And you were made to live in a perfect place. You should ask the question, you know, why do I think things should be better than they are? You ever thought about that? Why? Why do I just inherently think these are bad, this world should be better? So I'm going to work to make it a better place. Who taught? Why? Why? Why do you think it should be better? Who told you there was something better available? What if this is the best there is? And if we're just here by accident, then what does better mean? You see what I'm saying? you got to start to think through these things to say, okay, well, why is it instinctive to me and every human being, regardless of their belief system, to believe that this world should be a better place? Why? Why is that there? Lions don't think that. They don't walk around. They don't have little meetings discussing how they can make their little safari a better place. They don't do that. The light certainly doesn't think about how it could be a better room for lighting for the light. No. Why, why is it specifically to human beings that we assume that this world is broken as it is and it should be better? Why is that? Well, the reason for that is quite obvious from the scriptures. It's because you were made to live in the Garden of Eden. 
Since God created man and woman, specifically Adam and Eve, his first placement for them was in a place called the Garden of Eden. It was perfect. There were no problems, no sin, no death, no pain. It was a wonderfully perfect place. And human beings have been designed to live in that place. But then Adam and Eve broke the relationship with God and sent the whole world into chaos. And we are now current participants in that chaos. But you still know deep within your hard wiring in yourself that you are made for Eden. And that's the reason why you think the world should be a better place because you know it should be a better place. And particularly because you are made to live with God in a perfect place called Eden. This is your design. You also care what happens to people because you are made in the image of God, which means that deep within your hard wiring is a morality that tells you certain things should not be and should be this way. The reason why you care what happens to people is because God cares what happens to people, and you are made in the image of God. I want you to consider these claims and, and begin to think through, okay, well, maybe for some of you as Christians, it firms up some of the things you believe. Maybe for some of you as seekers, it gives you something to consider. But here's the final point with all of this, is that actually suffering and evil become evidence for God, not against him. So the big argument with many of you or many people in our world will say, well, how could a good God who's all-powerful, how, how does suffering exist because God's good and powerful so he can just wipe it out, you know? And that's an argument against God. But I want you to see on the flip side that suffering and evil make no sense apart from God. The ideas themselves are inherently nothing apart from God. And you and I as humans who care about these things doesn't make any sense apart from God. And so just for you to think through, not only is the idea of the devil and the reality of the devil and the spiritual battles going around us, not only are these things not crazy, but as a matter of fact, they're the only things that actually make sense. Now, if suffering and evil is evidence that God is there as opposed to God not being there, then once you see that, you've readied yourself for the solution. So if suffering and evil is evidence that God is there, and then you begin to be ready to say, well, if God is there, now I can position myself to say, well, God is actually the solution to all of the things that are going on wrong in the world. This is what Jesus said. We already read it. The thief comes to steal, kill, and destroy. But what? I came that they may have life. And so the problem is something spiritual, supernatural, that the devil's actively at work to steal, kill, and destroy. And you and I, because of our sin, join him in many ways in that, which is why we need a savior. But Jesus begins to do the opposite. The devil comes to take away life, but Jesus comes to give life. The devil comes to take away good things, and Jesus comes to overwhelm us with good things. Now, the reason this is good news and it is important is because Jesus doesn't do this like a nice guy giving good advice to say, oh, I wish things would get better and here are three principles by which we should live and here's how peace comes on earth. And he gives you a nice smile and he says, okay, be comforted by these words. No, 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 no. The reason why Jesus can deal with the devil is because Jesus has the power needed to do it. You do not need a nice person to give you nice advice with a nice smile to make you feel better about your life. You need someone with power. You need someone who can execute. You need someone who can handle the things that are going on in the world around you. You need someone who holds the whole world in their hand. You don't need good advice and a nice person and a nice religious leader to give you principles for life. You need authority and power. That's what you need to handle the suffering going on around you and to handle the own suffering in your life. And so here are two realities that I want to present to you. 
in light of this. The first is that our desire for real justice is only satisfied by the power and authority of Jesus. Our desire for real justice, like that things would be made right, that evil would be paid back, that things would be restored to how they should be. Our desire for real justice is ultimately only satisfied by the power and authority of Jesus. Now, this doesn't mean that we're not supposed to do anything. This means that as we engage in justice-seeking around the world, we're joining God, and what we are attempting can ultimately be executed to its completion because we are a part of God's plan. If your efforts for justice don't include God, they will fail because only God's going to bring it to the end. See what I'm saying? Only God can complete the thing that gets started. So if you begin to work to bring about good on the earth, but you don't do so in the name of the Lord and according to God's purposes, then eventually your plans will wear out and your efforts will fail. The only way to truly bring about justice in the world is to certainly do everything God has empowered you to do but then to ultimately trust Jesus to do everything that Jesus can do. Your desire for justice is good, and I am very thankful that it seems like God is raising up a generation of people who care about justice. It's just that the idea and the desire for justice needs to be pointed towards God. And the ultimate outcome needs to be trusted in from God. So as opposed to a generation raising up to bring justice on earth by our good efforts, a generation should raise up to bring justice on earth, joining with what God is doing and trusting God that though I will die and justice will not be prevailed completely, I'm a part of God's plan to bring about justice completely. That's real justice. So I want you to see, especially y'all, my Gen Z millennial people, if you want to be justice people, well, praise the Lord for that. Join God in bringing justice on earth God's way. And trust God to ultimately be the one who does the justice himself. This is the desire for justice that you have and that has been given to you and that seems to be a generational sign is a good thing if it's directed and empowered by the Jesus himself. This is good, but your desire for that is only satisfied by the power and authority of Jesus. Your desire for justice to be served in your own life for the person that wronged you to be paid back, for all of the things that you would like to be done and fixed and restored, is not satisfied by you getting vengeance or figuring it out. It's satisfied ultimately by the power and authority of Jesus. This should give you peace, my friend, to forgive. Romans 11 says that it is God's to avenge. So this doesn't mean you do nothing, but it certainly means you are proactive to forgive. Our desire for real justice, which is real, your desire that justice would be brought about in Ukraine and all these terrible things happening, is ultimately, no matter how hard you try and do what you can do, which you should, is ultimately only satisfied by the power and authority of Jesus. And our desire not only for justice, but for real life, is also only satisfied by the power and authority of Jesus. The thief comes to steal, kill, and destroy, and only Jesus has the power to deal with him. But Jesus says he has come to give life and to give it to the full. So your desire for real life, for purpose, for pleasure, for happiness, for contentment, for all of those things, particularly for eternal life that you would live forever, these things are only satisfied by the power and authority of Jesus. But here's what we do. We spend so much time, money, and energy trying to distract ourselves from the evil or drown out all the bad things that we, we try to find every other solution except the one that is there, the one that we need. 
and you're spending your time trying solution after solution after solution without actually going to the source of real life, without actually going to the source of real justice. In your efforts to distract yourselves from the sufferings of the world or your own sufferings, or your efforts to drown out all of these things through pursuing your own pleasures are actually leading you to come up empty every time because Jesus is the ultimate only solution for these things in your life. How do I get real life? I get it from Jesus. How do I accomplish real justice? I, I get it from Jesus. And your efforts to get those things anywhere else are leading you to come up empty time and time and time and time again. But Jesus has come to fix all that has gone wrong in the world. And this is the good news of the gospel. And the gospel has been preached from the very beginning of the Bible. Let me show you in Genesis 3, verse 15, after Adam and Eve sin against God, and then God finds Adam and Eve in the garden, he begins to speak with them. He makes this prophecy in verse 15. He says, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. Now, what he's talking about is the serpent that had deceived them. And what Jesus, what, is hint, what God is hinting at here is that though the serpent who lied and sent the whole world into chaos will bruise your hill, God will send someone to crush his head. This is the good news of the gospel. The word for bruise here actually means fatally bruised, which is why in some translations it's translated as crush, which is a better word for the situation. So let me do it just literally for you. Jesus shall crush the head of the serpent, the devil, even though he might bruise and nitpick at your heel. And so now the devil's nitpicking at your heel, and the only way for you to handle that is to have someone to come crush his head. And from the very beginning of the Bible... God had made this plan from the very beginning, obviously, of time. But even in the Bible being presented to us, the plan for Jesus to come, that someone would come and crush the head of the devil, which is why when Jesus appears, it says the Son of God appeared to destroy the works of the devil, to crush the head of the one that's ultimately causing all of the chaos in the world. This is why Jesus came. Jesus will destroy everything that is destructive. I love this truth that we see from Jesus. Man, he's not just a nice guy, which he is. He's the nicest. He's the most compassionate, but he's the strong one as well. Jesus will destroy everything that is destructive. Jesus will rebuild everything that has been torn down. Jesus will renew everything that has worn out. Jesus will redeem everything that has ever gone wrong, and Jesus will deliver everyone who puts their trust in him. This is what Jesus is doing, and he's doing it in your life as well if you trust in him. What is, the, what is Jesus doing in your life? Jesus is destroying everything that has been destructive to you. Jesus is rebuilding everything that has been torn down in your life. Jesus is renewing everything that has worn out in your life. Jesus is redeeming everything that has ever gone wrong in your life. And Jesus is delivering everyone who puts their life and trust in him. This is how you receive real encouragement in the Lord this morning to not only help you navigate the evil of the world around you, but to help you navigate the suffering of your own life. Jesus is actively with power, destroying the things that destroy and rebuilding the things that have been torn down and renewing the things that have been worn out and redeeming the things that have gone wrong and delivering those who trust in him. So be encouraged today. And this is the work of Jesus. Now, we need to ask the question, okay, well, why only Jesus? Okay, great, I get it. There's a big problem. needs to be solved. 
Great, we're on the same page. Okay, why only Jesus, though? Why not, why not a few options? You know, why only Jesus? Well, let me read you a scripture to help you understand. Mark 3, 22 through 27 says this. And the scribes who came down from Jerusalem were saying, so this is the religious leaders. They're talking about Jesus. They're saying this. He is possessed by Beelzebul, which is the devil. And by the prince of demons, he cast out demons. So they're associating Jesus with the devil, which is a big mistake to make. Verse 23, and Jesus, and he called to them, and he said to them in parables, well, how can Satan cast out Satan? It's just being logical. If a kingdom is divided against itself, that kingdom cannot stand. And if a house is divided against itself, that house will not be able to stand. And if Satan has risen up against himself and is divided, he cannot stand, but it's coming to an end. Here's the verse. But no one can enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man. Then indeed he may plunder his house. Now the idea here is that no one can go into a strong man's house and plunder what the strong man has unless he's stronger than him. Meaning no one can enter into Satan's house and take what Satan has stolen unless he's stronger than him. This is what you need. You need the strong man who can take care of the strong man. You don't need a nice man. You don't need someone with good advice. You don't need a nice religious leader. You need a strong man to handle the strong man, which is why you need Jesus. This is what Jesus says, that he has come to plunder what the devil has stolen. What does it say? The thief comes to steal, kill, and destroy. What does Jesus do? He goes into the strong man's house, and he says, give back to me what you stole. And he says, I will bring to life the thing that you killed. This is the work of Jesus, and you need a strong man to deliver you from the strong man. So not only does Jesus have the compassion and the love that we associate with him, but he also has the power and authority. Now listen, everybody in here knows and has an example of someone who's made a promise to you but doesn't have the power and authority to execute. You guys know that feeling, right? You guys have all experienced that. Someone made a promise, but they don't have the power and authority to execute. So your supervisor told you you could get a raise, but when he asked his boss, the boss said no. And he's like, okay, well, that was nice. That was a good idea, you know. This happened recently with somebody I know where they were promised something by someone with really good intentions. But as soon as that, that promise had to make its way up the ranks of authority, the person on top said, can't do that. So it comes all the way back, and the person who made a promise with good intentions has to say, I'm sorry, it can't happen. Because they did not have the power and authority to execute. Now, how true is this in our life? that you have trusted in people or promises that simply don't have the power and authority to execute what you need. Jesus is not only the one who loves you, but he's the one who has the power and authority to execute his promises to you. And you know this in every day. The reason why you get upset at a store and you ask for a manager is because you want someone who can do something about it. And the reason why you want to get beyond the manager to the owner is because you want the one who can ultimately do something about it. This is why. But you know what you and I are like with our problems and our suffering? It's like we're talking to the cashier and saying, do something about it. We're talking to the drink and saying, do something about it. To the computer, do something about it. To the government, do something about it. To the president, do something about it. And all the while, you should have been asking for the manager. If you want something to be done about it. 
Nobody on this earth has the power and authority to execute ultimately what you need. Nobody, no matter how good their intentions are and how nice they may be, nobody has the power and authority to execute. Only God is the owner and God has the ultimate say-so. And you keep going to the cashier and you keep going to the employee and you keep asking everyone around you in governments and systems to solve these problems and you're not going to speak to the manager. And what we want to do today is reveal to you that not only is God the only one who can solve the problem, but he has solved the problem. Some of you need to stop talking to the employees and you need to ask to speak to the manager. Which means you should stop griping about it to other people and start praying about it to God. How much energy are you giving to people that can't help you? I'm trying to help you right now to say, man, why don't you talk to someone who can do something about it? This is what prayer is. How wonderful it is that you have access to the king of the universe. Nobody can tell God no. Nobody can stop God from doing what he's doing. He has no accountability. He can do whatever he wants. This is wonderful. This is so wonderful. Nobody can stop God from doing what God wants to do. Listen, you guys know this. I want you to write it down just to help you process it. A promise is only as good as the person who makes it. Right? This is why you trust some people and you don't trust other people. A promise is only as good as the person who makes it. I don't care what you say. I care who you are. And if I can trust who you are, then I'll take what you say. You know what I'm saying? And you know that in everyday life. This is why you trust some people and you don't. A promise is only good as a person making it. Now listen to me. Only Jesus ultimately has the power to make good on the promises he makes to you. Okay? No human being in the entire universe can 100% guarantee to execute for your good the things that you need. And even though there may be lots of people who are making good promises to you with good intentions, they simply do not have the capacity and the power to execute to the ends that is needed the things that they promise to you. They do not. A promise is only as good as the person who makes it, which makes Jesus the only solution. Only Jesus can fulfill the promises that are being made to you. Only Jesus can solve the problems that you're facing. Only Jesus can fix the things that have gone wrong with the world. How many times are you putting your trust in people to make promises to you and being let down when all the while God's the one that you can trust? So consider this. What have you been trusting in for pleasure to make good on its promise every time? Have you been trusting in something other than God, you know, to make good on its promise every time? Obviously, you've realized it can't do it. Can what you trust currently for safety, can that make good on its promise every time? What you're trusting to make you feel safe and secure, can that thing or that person make good on its promise every time, 100% without failure? Can what you trust in for love, assurance, hope, healing, forgiveness, ultimately eternal life, can these things or people make good on their promises 100% guaranteed every time? You know the answer is no to that. Not only can they not do that, but you can't do that. You can't make good on the promises you make to yourself every single time. You can't control bringing about your best interest every single time. You simply do not have the power and the capacity to make sure things work out well for you. You just don't, and neither does anyone else. This is really important for us as we learn to navigate not only the suffering of the world around us and the evil of the world around us, but 
the suffering of our own lives, the evil not only that we have received, but also the evil that we have done for others. The reason why also Jesus is the only one who can handle this problem is because it's only by Jesus' blood can your evil be forgiven. Because it's real easy to say, well, how is Jesus going to fix the world around us? But we need to ask, well, how is he going to fix me? It starts right here. As if I'm not a part of the evil that happens in the world around us. Just because I don't take it to the extreme that we see doesn't mean I'm not just as complicit. And so not only do I want to encourage you that Jesus is going to make right all the terrible things that are happening around you. This is why he's the strong man who can plunder the strong man. But also he's the one who gives you his blood to take care of all of your sins and evil. So what do I do with the evil around me? Well, I do what I can to involve myself in ways God wants me to, and I trust God. And I, I trust him to work things out in the way that is best. I give justice over to God, and I can at least rest at peace. The, the struggles of the world can't weigh on my shoulders. I can't live like that. And so I'm going to trust God. What do I do with the evil in my own heart? I also have to trust God. This is why Jesus came. Why did Jesus come? Well, so that he could live a perfect life, one that you have not lived. So that he could die on the cross, so that his blood can, can take care of all of your sins. What do you do with your evil? Will you either put him on the cross and let Jesus take care of it, or you hold it on yourself and you get judged on the final day? Your evil will be dealt with in hell forever or on the cross one time. You can choose. Would you rather all your wickedness be taken care of one time on a cross and not by you, or all your wickedness be taken care of forever in a place called hell by you? This is what the good news of the gospel is all about. And if the devil's a fairy tale and all the wickedness is whatever, and we're just trying to come up with human rational explanations for these things, then we'll never receive the good news of the gospel. To say, I need something supernatural. My sin, not only is the devil creating all this wickedness, but I have joined him. I am complicit. This is the scriptures so often associate. Before we come to Christ, it associates us as being children of the devil. And if we can't handle that accusation, then we'll never receive salvation. You say, well, I'm not that bad. Well, God says, yes, you are. But I love you enough to die for all of those things. This is the good news of the gospel. Jesus is the strong man that can plunder the strong man. He will take back everything the devil has stolen from you. But also, Jesus is the one who can die on the cross for your sins. His blood is sufficient for all of the world's evil, but all of your evil also. This is the good news of the gospel. Would you put your trust in him today if you have not? Now, I want to close, and I want to show you, just with some scriptures now, uh, the work of the devil and Jesus' work over and against him. So I want to encourage you as we close about not only what is the devil up to so that you have awareness, but also what is Jesus doing about it. And so what I have to say is completely irrelevant, so I'm just going to read the scriptures about what God has to say. Remember, a promise is only as good as the person who makes it. And Jesus has made these promises to you. 1 Peter 5.8 says, Be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary the devil prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour Resist him, firm in your faith, knowing that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. And after you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace, who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ, get this, will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. To him be the dominion forever and ever. Amen. What a verse. Will himself. God doesn't delegate. God executes. 
himself. He's going to use his hands to pick you up. He's going to use his heart to express love to you. God himself, this is the promise to you, will restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. This is God's promise to you. And that will happen one day, finally, but he also wants you to experience it in great degrees now. Revelation 20, verse 10 says, And the devil who had deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire. So you say, what is God doing with the devil? Well, here's ultimately what's going to happen and where the beast and the false prophet were. And there they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. So ultimately, the plan of God is to get rid of the devil for all of time. So he's going to deal with him. The strong man's going to deal with the strong man. But then Revelations 21, 1 through 5, what is God going to do over and against that? What is the response? What is the, what is the end goal here? He says, then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And then I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them. They will be his people. And get this, God who himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes and death shall be no more. Neither shall be their mourning, crying, or pain anymore for the former things have passed away. And he who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. And he said, Write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we love you. We thank you for these words. Oh, Lord, you know my words can do no justice to these words. We thank you, Lord, for your scriptures. Thank you for your promises. Thank you, Lord, that you are always faithful. Thank you that you are the strong man, Lord. You're not in some battle with the devil as equals, Lord, but you are in complete control. Thank you, Lord, that you loved us enough to die on the cross for us, Lord. Thank you that your blood is sufficient to cover all of our evil. Thank you that your justice is sufficient to cover all the evil in the world. And I just pray now, especially for your people, I pray this verse from 1 Peter, that in this very moment today, in the midst of all of the trials and the struggles and the trauma and the difficulties of life, in the midst of all the heaviness and the oppressiveness and the mental health battles and the physical health battles and the relational strife, Lord, and the things that have been done to us and the things we have done to others. I just pray, Lord, these four words that you have promised that for your people right now you would confirm, strengthen, restore, and establish us. That you would give us strength, Lord, to manage not only our lives, but the the troubles of the world around us. Thank you for everything you've done for us in Jesus. We put our trust ultimately in you. It's in Jesus' name we pray, amen. Why don't you stand, let's respond to the Lord.